This is Dr. Rob Harder with the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, making your world better. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? What are the biggest challenges? What are the biggest obstacles? How should nonprofits fundraise in an economy that is constantly changing? All of these reasons combined led me to start this show. And it's my hope that through this series, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear from effective leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy the show as together we hear how they are making their world better. As a leader of a nonprofit, you know firsthand how important it is to have the right technology tools and strategies in place to achieve your mission. Well, that's where Heller Consulting comes in. Heller Consulting is a premier consulting firm that specializes in helping nonprofit organizations achieve their goals through effective technology strategy and implementation. Whether you need help with technology roadmaps, CRM strategy, Salesforce, or Microsoft implementations, Team Heller has you covered. With Heller Consulting on your side, you can trust that you'll have the support you need to make the most of your organization's technology resources. Just visit teamheller.com slash NLP to learn more. Again, visit teamheller.com slash NLP for Nonprofit Leadership Podcast to learn more. There is no doubt that the great resignation, or some are calling it the great reshuffle, has impacted us all, you know, particularly in the nonprofit sector. Well, my guest today has a slightly different take on why that is the case. He argues that we don't have a worker shortage in America. We have a quality jobs shortage, and we've been having that for quite a while, and COVID just made that even more extreme. My guest today is Don Howard. He is the CEO of the James Irvine Foundation, which is California's largest private foundation dedicated to workers' economic advancement. Well, Don shares some really interesting ideas emerging from his many years of experience in the nonprofit sector. Enjoy today's show. Don, it's great to have you on the show today. Now, I would like to talk about first our current labor environment and how nonprofits can help add some positive momentum towards changing the focus of these conversations. Now, there's been so much talk, as I said on the outset, about the great resignation or what some of people are calling the great reshuffle. So I wanted to start with something you shared in an article you wrote for Forbes. You argue that we don't have a worker shortage in America. We have a quality jobs shortage. Talk to me about that. Tell me more what you mean by that. Hi, Rob. It's good to be here. Good to see you. And thanks for the invite. Um, For listeners, uh, just let me start, but for listeners who may not be familiar with the James Irvine Foundation, let me just share a few highlights of our work. Unlike other foundations folks might be familiar with, we have a singular goal that unites all of our work. We call it our North Star, and it unites all of our grant making. Our North Star is ensuring that every low-income California worker has the power to advance economically. It's important to note that, I don't know if you know this, 80% of low-wage workers in California are people of color, and 40% are immigrants. So by putting low-wage workers at the center of our North Star, we've made a strong commitment to workers of color to break down barriers to economic opportunity and ensure, importantly, we chose the word power, to ensure they have the power Um, to affect decisions that influence their lives. Now, also important to know we're focused exclusively on California and we're independent of any family or company. For those who are in philanthropy, those are two important distinctions. Uh, Last thing I'll say is our grant making this year will be about $180 million. million. Well, it's a gift. It's an and a privilege. Uh, Sort of with that as background, here's some of what we've learned from listening to low-income workers our grantees in the field and other partners in the work that we get to do. 
Um, our labor shortage uh, here in California, but I would argue nationally, isn't primarily due to a lack of workers. Uh, what we don't have is enough quality jobs. Uh, we think of quality jobs as jobs that have good wages, benefits, predictable scheduling, safe and dignified working conditions, job security, and opportunities for advancement. Employers are desperate to meet rising demand, but they can't hire or retain staff in perpetually low-wage service sectors that undervalue and underpay workers. And workers are often in dangerous conditions in these industries. So it shouldn't be a surprise to any of us, given what the pandemic showed us, that we have an economy with gross inequality and an economy that puts workers' lives at risk. I'm sort of on the good news front, things we get to see that we're excited about. Employers are recognizing that they need to improve the quality of jobs. They're beginning to raise the floor. They're beginning to create ladders for career advancement. And they know they need to do this if they want to win the war for talent. We're also seeing worker wages starting to go up for the first time in decades. You know, but unfortunately, as we all know, inflation is eating away at those wage gains, and they need to be sustained and increased. Um, we're also seeing labor force participation rates begin to creep up, uh, adding more workers to the labor force. So some reasons I'm optimistic. And they say out of crisis comes opportunity, and we have an opportunity now to do things differently. We have an opportunity to rebuild our economy as we recover from the pandemic and as we rebuild for climate resilience. That opportunity can create millions of jobs and propel workers into a middle class that's accessible to everyone, regardless of race or immigration status. No, that's really interesting. And you really believe that this situation we're in started a while ago and is really an indictment of the low quality jobs that many, many Americans have struggled with for years. And so you also use the word languish to describe what many American workers have been feeling, especially the last couple of years. And it actually reminded me of an article recently by Adam Grant in which he argues that, quote, languishing may have been the most dominant emotion of last year. And it continues into this year. In fact, he calls languishing as the neglected middle child of mental health. I really like the way he said that. You too believe there have been a lot of workers in America that have been languishing in their jobs for quite some time. What do you mean by that? And why do you think that is the case? I'm glad you brought this up, Rob. I really do. For decades, we've seen widening pay gaps, reductions in benefits and flexibility, and a sense among workers that employers simply don't value them. One of our grantees is called the Economic Policy Institute. You might be familiar with them. They recently estimated that compensation has grown 1,300% for CEOs since 1978, but just 18% for the typical worker. That's scandalous. Uh, we also have enormous gaps in training for workers that are uh, looking at possibly getting into high-demand jobs. I often uh, remind folks that 65% or so of the adult population doesn't have a baccalaureate degree. Yet over the years, we've decimated career and technical education. There are tons of great paying jobs, jobs that can support a family and help them step into the middle class that are going unfilled. These are the kind of jobs that require more than a high school degree, but less than a four-year college degree. They go unfilled because we've stigmatized these professions and we've closed off pathways to train for and attain these jobs. You know, and again, here's some optimism. Uh, as we rebuild our economy, we have the opportunity to start a new chapter in California's economy. There's so much public funding coming into communities to help them transition to climate and business resilience. We need to ensure those funds drive inclusive and equitable prosperity. And that's going to require leaders from across sectors to come together. 
We need to see labor leaders, business leaders, civic leaders, educational leaders, grassroots leaders come together to chart their community's transition to climate and business resilience and to be able to use that transition to resuscitate the California dream and access to the middle class. Philanthropy has a critical role to play, and I know that's what listeners here are interested in hearing about. Uh, We in philanthropy can fund efforts to elevate worker and community voices. We can help disadvantaged communities prepare and compete for funding, and we can rally a cross-section of leaders to build that path forward. You know, again, some promising efforts for folks who are interested. Um, We're involved with a few of these um, in terms of enabling communities to chart their own destinies toward climate and business resilience. There's a new program here in California, state-funded, called the Community Economic Resilience Fund, or SURF for short. It's a $600 million state-funded program that funds California's regions, each and every one of them, to chart their own economic transition and to have some resources to compete for uh, pre-development of the ideas that they're seeing and uh, hoping for their local economies, largely creating new economic clusters and projects. Um, it's a pretty new model. I don't know if it's come across your radar screen. It's being called inclusive economic development planning, and it's really anchored in shared governance, where establishment players aren't the only ones who make the decisions or de- determine where the resources go. And community members in these coalitions should have real power to help steer the economic development decisions that affect their lives. And here's another example. In California, philanthropies come together to establish something called the Community Economic Mobilization Initiative, or CIMI for short. And with CIMI, number of uh, funders, I think there's seven or eight now, we're pooling our funding for re-granting to grassroots organizations so they can expand their capacity and deepen their expertise and have the ability to be at those tables, hold their own, and have power in the decision-making around how new public funding is deployed. We're also seeing some new efforts in training the future workforce. There's been this really exciting resurgence and reimagination of apprenticeships. These are earn and learn models, considered the gold standard for workforce development. State of California, through the governor's office, have established some really bold goals, 500,000 new apprenticeships. And these are apprenticeships that are in the skilled trades, but go well beyond them into new sectors of the economy, new job categories. Uh, We were privileged to make a $2 million grant recently to the Foundation for California community colleges so that they can expand apprenticeships, particularly in the Inland Empire of our state, Riverside, San Bernardino, uh, so that residents who face barriers of opportunity can get great jobs. Last thing I'll say, because I know I'm running a little long, there's a lot of energy and a lot of progress toward defining quality jobs. The uh, Aspen Institute um, and the Families and Workers Fund do great work, and they've developed a shared definition of good jobs, which has now been adopted by some federal funders. I appreciate using the word language. I think it's a great word to describe what a lot of low-wage workers experience and how they're experiencing the economy right now. If you look just at California, nearly half of all workers are struggling to make ends meet. I'd be languishing if I couldn't afford things like food, housing, and medicine. Uh, Paychecks just don't go far enough in California for folks to be able to keep up with the basic needs and sustain their families. Wage growth, too, as much as we're excited about beginning to see that tick up, it's not keeping up with inflation. So we have a lot of workers, half of the workforce, who are struggling. Um, That's why we're excited to see a resurgence in worker power. And I think that's a key ingredient to moving from uh, languishing or just surviving um, to thriving. 
No, that's excellent. Thank you. And as you know, this is a podcast dedicated to nonprofit leaders, and, and you're the CEO of the James Irvine Foundation, which is California's largest private foundation dedicated to workers' economic advancement. Now, you've talked and written a lot about the once-in-a-generation opportunity presented by the billions of dollars being dispersed by the federal and state governments to shore up our nation's infrastructure. Now, if distributed thoughtfully, you contend that this money has the potential to create quality jobs and economic opportunities for communities that have been historically left behind. Now, how can philanthropy in the nonprofit sector ensure that low-income communities and communities of color specifically are able to access and compete for these funding opportunities? Yeah, it's interesting. We've been doggedly and laser-focused on this. Back in the early days of the pandemic, we started thinking forward toward what kind of jobs would be coming forward as we recovered from the pandemic. And it became increasingly clear that there was going to be a large public investment to resuscitate the economy and that there were opportunities. We all knew infrastructure repairs were necessary and climate change needed to be addressed. So we got going, I would say, relatively early on to think about how these public funds could be used to create jobs. I joke sometimes that climate change is an existential threat. It's also a jobs program and an opportunity for economic mobility. You know, by some estimates here in California, we're slated to receive upwards of $100 billion in infrastructure and climate funding. A big chunk of that's coming from California, and a big chunk is coming from the Infrastructure Act, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, um, and the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, These investments can't just fortify our state and its residents, but also create good jobs and drive economic and racial equity. Um, But we got to do a lot of hard work to make sure that we ensure equity in these resources. Because we all know infrastructure has historically promoted a lot of inequality and racial segregation. We need to be really intentional to do things differently this time. Um, I shared a few examples earlier about how philanthropy can support equitable investment in public funding, but let me add one more. You know, For generations, public procurement has been used to drive uh, opportunity for minority and women-owned businesses, help them grow and prosper. Sadly, the results had been dismal. So back in 2021, we supported some research to determine what reforms were necessary so that procurement could live up to its promise. That led to a group of leaders from government, labor, and philanthropy uh, that led them to create what's being called the Equity and in Infrastructure Project, the national effort to measurably increase the size and scope of contracting opportunities that are won by what they're terming historically underutilized businesses. These are minority and women-owned businesses. What's been exciting about this national project is they've created a pledge, and there are first-mover agencies that are taking that pledge. Three are here in California, and the pledge is to adopt the reforms that have been identified and then to learn together about how to improve their procurement practices to make sure that that uh, procurement drives to addressing the racial wealth gap and also creating good jobs in the small businesses that win those contracts. Um, Last thing I'll say is philanthropic leaders have, you know, we've all spoken up a lot about racial equity. The racial reckoning caused quite a lot of, I think, revisiting of the work that we do, a lot of uh, bold promises that were made. And I think now's the time for us to walk the walk. Um, There's uh, a chance to use this torrent of uh, government dollars coming in to make sure that those racial equity commitments can be achieved. You know, we can either watch these dollars flow in or we can use our resources, our convening power, and our knowledge of the local nonprofit organizations to help them leverage those dollars and deploy them 
in ways that they choose in order to create an economy that works better uh, for all and uh, to help their communities thrive. We'll be right back. As a leader of a nonprofit, you know firsthand how important it is to have the right technology tools and strategies in place to achieve your mission. Well, that's where Heller Consulting comes in. Heller Consulting is a premier consulting firm that specializes in helping nonprofit organizations achieve their goals through effective technology strategy and implementation. Whether you need help with technology roadmaps, CRM strategy, Salesforce, or Microsoft implementations, Team Heller has you covered. With Heller Consulting on your side, you can trust that you'll have the support you need to make the most of your organization's technology resources. Just visit teamheller.com slash NLP to learn more. Again, visit teamheller.com slash NLP for Nonprofit Leadership Podcast to learn more. Well, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. If this is your first time listening to us, I wanted to make sure you're aware of a whole group of other episodes with fascinating guests that I previously interviewed. Just go to our website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. There you will find numerous interviews of nonprofit leaders from all over the country, including some from other countries, all trying to make their world better. When you go to our website, you can also subscribe to my monthly leadership update in order to get more content, ask me questions, and join the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast community. Just look for the subscribe button, which is on the top right-hand side. It's a real easy process. Well, thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. That's a great segue into the fact that the Irvine Foundation's Priority Communities Initiative aims to build shared prosperity in some of California's most underinvested cities and regions by bringing community voices to the table along with public and private sector leaders so they can collectively chart a path to inclusive economic development. Now, why has this been so important for you and why have you put so much time into it? We've seen a lot of effort, let's say nationally, but here in California, to do a tops down uh, plan for economic development and climate transition. And what's been learned is it just doesn't work, that that transition needs to happen at the local and regional level. So the transition to just and inclusive economies needs to happen with leaders, including workers. Some folks often say with workers at the center at a regional and metro level, particularly in communities that are often overlooked. So we've chosen five priority communities. These are longstanding commitments, predate um, our current work. But communities which uh, we've chosen because they're critical to California's future, they've been underinvested in for years. They've got tremendous assets to build upon, and they have great leaders and nonprofits who've shown they can work together to remake their economies. Our five priority communities are uh, in Central California and one on California's Central Coast. Um, In particular, I'm proud of work that's been done in one of our priority communities, which is Fresno. Uh, Fresno leaders came together early on to really innovate and pilot this model of inclusive economic development and shared governance. It's called Fresno Drive, uh, cross-sector collaborative. They worked together with philanthropic support. I think the philanthropic support was on the order of uh, maybe one and a half million between Irvine, Kresge, and some other funders. They charted a 10-year investment plan to move their economy to greater inclusion and resilience. One of the ideas they developed uh, was called the Future of food innovation. And it's a, uh, a really exciting effort to build off the agricultural history of Fresno and move toward higher value uh, food production, entrepreneurship, and uh, economic growth and jobs. Um, it's such an exciting model that they competed for recently 
one, the largest Build Back Better regional challenge grant at $65 million. So if you're in philanthropy or you're a nonprofit, that kind of is a picture-perfect case of how investing in innovation can learn, can leverage public funds. That's a huge return on investment for the philanthropic and, uh, uh, contributions, and it's allowed access in just one of their projects to an additional $65 million. Yeah, that's really important. I'm glad you listed some of those. Could you talk a little bit more about the Fresno Drive? Who were specifically the partners in that? And I'm thinking government partners, nonprofit partners, who made up that Fresno Drive? Yeah, it was uh, centered around their community foundation, the Central Valley Community Foundation, led by their former mayor, which I think was a very interesting uh, sort of leader within the public sector that transitioned into philanthropy. The uh, a community foundation in partnership with local nonprofits decided to create a table to think about their economy going forward. It actually came out of some listening and collaborative work they did around possible investments from um, the uh, Transformative Climate Communities Program in California, which is um, carbon exchange dollars being deployed into communities. They built on that, as many good collaboratives do. They had a history of beginning to work together, and they expanded that. Uh, business was at the table, uh, philanthropy was at the table, worker leaders, uh, civic organizations, community organizers, et cetera. And they took some real risks. Uh, they also had to spend some time, and I think this is important to note, investing the time and effort to address the traumas in their community created by decades of, of exploitation at its worst of non-white workers um, in their communities. And it's one thing that we learned, and I hope um, this program called SURF in California will embed in its work, is that you can't rush to assume collaboration as possible. I remember uh, one listening session where I heard this recounted when the uh, community was asked about participating in the Community Economic Resilience Fund. One of the residents said they uh, weren't able to uh, collaborate or be at that table because one of the members of the table was a business that had damaged the health of her child. And it just really reminds me, and I hope reminds us, that the history in these communities is of trauma, that that trauma needs to be addressed if we want to get uh, real cross-sector collaboration. It's easy to talk about collaboration and then the investments. And this is a great place for philanthropy. We were able to invest in some support uh, of an organization that helps with facilitation, dialogue, and support uh, for conversations that help get at some of those traumas. Okay, well, along those lines, your foundation funds several organizations like Jobs to Move America, the National Domestic Workers Alliance, and the Partnership for Working Families. Talk about that. How does that work, and what have been some of the success stories so far? I'm glad you brought up the National Domestic Workers Alliance, NDWA. They're a great success story, and they really show the role that philanthropy can play in helping to empower workers um, in uh, today's economy and hopefully for a better economy going forward. NDWA, for those who don't know, organizes and advocates for the more than 2 million people who clean homes, care for our children, and for our older adults and our families. Domestic work, mostly performed by immigrants and women of color, is largely unregulated where some of the worst exploitation happens. Um, there's low pay and it's rife with abuse. Um, COVID hit care workers particularly hard. Uh, I think we saw that all around us um, because care workers are often excluded from formal safety net programs and they're on the front lines dealing with the essential work 
doing the essential work of caring for our families and our um, and our fellow community members. Uh, NDWA could not have responded effectively to its members during the pandemic without significant philanthropic support. It was exciting to see so many funders come together and make uh, unrestricted and emergency support grants to organizations like NDWA. Funding from foundations like Irvine helped them connect with 35,000 additional care workers in the state just last year, in addition to helping their members navigate through and in best case survive the tumult of the of the pandemic. So what do you see on the horizon as being the biggest challenge facing the nonprofit sector, say, in the next one to three years? You know, it's just as a reminder, I was also a partner at a nonprofit consulting firm for 11 years called the Bridgeband Group and had the privilege of working for well on a hundred nonprofit organizations, helping their leaders you know, have better strategies for impact, but also navigate the chaotic and efficient and dysfunctional funding environment now, which I'm on the other side of. No, it's been great. Thanks for mentioning the Bridgespan Group. We have had two different guests over the years from the Bridgespan Group, and uh, it's great to know your connection with them, and we've always been impressed with the Bridgespan. Oh, that's great. No, that's great. And so some of these ideas are informed by that experience as well as what I uh, am doing now at the Irvine Foundation. You know, there has been so much talk of racial equity, and I think all of us, the nonprofits that are doing the work in communities proximate and responsible to their members, as well as funders. We need to fulfill and sustain those commitments. And we need to overcome the inertia, the unconscious and conscious biases, and do what we can to right power imbalances. That's why we've included power as one of the aspects of our North Star and why we fund organizations that are bringing workers together to empower them to have a greater say in the decisions that affect their lives. Second, and I know this is going to be somewhat of a platitude, but funding is always a challenge. I think we sit here now in an environment with a lot of uncertainty in the economy, uncertainty in the market, which drives our ability to make grants, and uncertainty in the funding environment for high net worth donors who are seeing their portfolios decline. So that means funding is going to get scarcer. Um, I would uh, argue that funders like Irvine and others uh, in philanthropy, got, we've got to step forward in this moment. And we've got to be able to bring more resources to nonprofits that are going to be starved of reliable funding in the downturn that we're uh, likely to see in the coming months. Last thing I'll say, and this is a personal passion of mine, is that nonprofits, because they're so committed to their mission, so passionate, and because their work is so urgent, um, even more so now, they often skip investing in their own infrastructure. And these are areas like information technology, financial systems, uh, their staff, their staff's development, other things that are often called overhead. And those are necessary. They're actually essential for successful work for all kinds of organizations, particularly for nonprofits. I wrote years ago about something called the nonprofit starvation cycle, which documents some of the dynamics here. And we're all complicit. Uh, we often you know, expect our grantees to tell us their overhead is 15% or less. And then we fund at 15% and it perpetuates this sort of myth that you can survive and thrive on a 15% overhead. Uh, the research shows that most service-oriented business have overhead that's more like 25% than it is 15%. So we at Irvine have moved to have, uh, first of all, flexible funding. The more flexible funding funders can provide, then the nonprofit leaders themselves can decide what to go into infrastructure and what to go into frontline uh, service delivery or advocacy work. So 
let me lastly mention something that's a personal passion of mine, and that is the need for greater funding for nonprofit infrastructure. You know, we all know nonprofits are just so passionate about their missions. The urgency of what they're trying to do is so high that they unintentionally or because of those passions underfund their internal infrastructure. These are the kinds of things like information technology, financial systems, uh, staffing, COOs are often um, absent from these larger organizations. These are all things that have been termed overhead. Uh, I wrote years ago with a colleague about something called that we called the nonprofit starvation cycle. And it's basically this cycle of behaviors, including funders, nonprofits, that lead to this kind of pernicious underfunding of overhead. For you know, we often fund 15% or less. And I'd say we broader philanthropy. That leads our nonprofit colleagues, our grantees, to tell us that their um, overhead is 15%. And then that reinforces to us that that's the right level. And unfortunately, then the nonprofit leaders have to go off and raise flexible funds from individual donors to backfill what philanthropy isn't paying for. Um, so we at Irvine, and um, over the last several years, have moved to providing more flexible funding, more general operating support, flexible project support, so that the leaders in these institutions can decide what they want to fund and can have the resources that they would need for investing in their overhead. I would encourage other funders out there to move to more general operating support and to, uh, if they can't, increase their allocation for indirect um, overhead. Looking at other service-oriented businesses, uh, the research shows that real overhead is something more like 25% rather than 15%. And I think we all have to acknowledge that that's what it takes to build a healthy nonprofit ecosystem. And what we saw in the pandemic is organizations need to have those resources so they can address the emerging needs, do the innovation that they need to do. So I hope that's something that um, I'm seeing a little bit more of, and I hope it continues to grow. That's so interesting. Now, there is a trend going on now that is called trust-based philanthropy. Essentially, I think particularly during COVID, a lot more donors were willing to give a gift that's unrestricted, right? They would give it to a local nonprofit and not put any restrictions on it because they trusted that nonprofit to put it where needed most. Now, me as a CEO of a local nonprofit, I love that, right? And, And most of the nonprofit leaders I know really like that opportunity because then they can apply those funds where needed most. And so do you think this trust-based philanthropy, is it a trend that's going to go back in say a couple of years once we're really out of this COVID crisis where people go back to really restricting their gifts? Or do you think this trust-based philanthropy is here to stay? Well, we're big believers in trust-based philanthropy and I have been excited to see folks and there's been some big leaders in the philanthropic world who are really showing us that trust-based philanthropy, what it can do. And I do think there will be continued growth in unrestricted uh, funding, but I do worry that given the nature of philanthropy, I had a colleague who used to say at Bridgespan, all philanthropy is personal. And what you find in institutions is they begin to get their, frankly, sometimes people believe it's their money and they have a set of beliefs about how that money should be invested. And they begin to tell nonprofit leaders and their organizations what they should do with the money. Having been involved in a lot of this and early in my career, the whole notion of foundations have a theory, having a theory of change. Um, I'm proud to say here at Irvine, we do not have a theory of change in our different initiatives. We fund leaders who are in the community, proximate to the challenge, responsible to their members. 
and then encourage them to bring back ideas to us as a collective. We have what we call core grantees in each of our initiatives to bring back to us ideas for policy and systems change. And then we fund their best ideas for how to magnify their impact. I think that's one model for having trust-based philanthropy, but also in the focus we have around economic mobility, particularly for low-wage workers of color, we can begin to see how trusting our nonprofit partners can also lead to the kind of magnified change that philanthropy is often looking for. I think it's an unfortunate and unintended consequence of the move toward greater philanthropic accountability to see foundations beginning to, uh, or this was back in the 90s, began to clarify what goals that they sought and then create these series of change, plug grantees into a box, fund them with what looked like a work order looks like a work order, and then force them to do things that are not in their interest, their best interest. I remember actually the room we were recording this and sitting with a CEO of one of our grantees uh, before I became CEO and all of the staff left the room and uh, all wonderful high quality folks. But I asked the leader at the time, I said, we had a $600,000 grant to this organization. And I said, if you had this $600,000 with no strings attached, would you do the things that are on this list? And he said to me, oh, no way. I would invest in professional development. I would invest in innovation. I would strengthen our operating reserves. I would do a set of things that are quite different. And it was like a light bulb goes off. And you say, we've got to stop telling folks what to do. So if I have a couple of words of encouragement for funders, it's get out of the way. Give the money away. That's your job. Find the highest impact investment opportunities. Give the money away. And for nonprofit leaders, encourage folks, don't take bad money. I know it's really hard to say no to money, but know yourself, as they say, and know what's uh, in service of your mission. And if someone's trying to wrap you around the axle, um, have the strength to say, that's not in our best interests. We appreciate your offer, but we're not going to take money under those terms. Well, Don, this has been fascinating. Thank you again for being on the show and sharing your insights with us. How can people find out more about you and the Irvine Foundation? Well, thanks for having me. It was a fun conversation. Anyone who's interested in learning more about our work and our mission to support California workers, you can visit our website at irvine.org and learn more about the work. And there's a place there to get in contact with us. And if you have ideas or suggestions or want to learn more, don't hesitate to reach out. And again, that's irvine.org. Thank you again, Don. Thank you, Rob. Really appreciate it. Hey, friends. Well, I wanted you to know that this podcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, Google Podcasts, and wherever you listen to other podcasts. I also want to encourage you to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with others. This will actually help us get this great content out to more nonprofit leaders just like you. You can also join the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast community, find other resources and interviews of past guests all on my website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Well, thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep making your world better.